Hello, and welcome to episode 91 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. You can find all episodes of the podcast at podcast.tennisabstract.com. You can find me at Twitter, Twitter at Tennis Abstract. You can find Carl at Carl Bialik. And you can also listen to our coronavirus podcast, which also has a new episode dropping today. And that's at dangerousexponents.com. So lots of content to keep you busy if you decide this particular episode is not for you. What we're talking about this week is the general idea of natural experiments. So there's no tennis happening right now. We're still several days away from the Australian Open warm-up starting. But all the players are in a very weird situation, at least all the ones in Australia. Some of them are in hard quarantine. All of them are in some form of quarantine with limited ability to, to practice or at least move about the way they would want to. And these sort of issues and similar issues have been coming up since the beginning of the pandemic, at least in tennis since the tours came back in August. And the same issues have faced other sports as well, all of which have had to enforce different kinds of social distancing or limited number or complete lack of fans, limited travel, and on and on and on. Lots of things have changed. And that has given risen to some opportunities to analyze things in sports that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. So that leads us to this concept of natural experiments. So before we dig into the specific issues that we have listed and we're ready to talk about in tennis and other sports, Carl, you you initially suggested this topic, and I think it's a great one. Let's start with a working definition. Like, how would you explain the concept of a natural experiment? It's where something changes ideally for some part of a, of a group you're interested in. And that change happens for external reasons, having nothing to do with the desire to, to study the effect of that change, but because the world changes. And because that has happened, and because who it's affected is somewhat randomly selected, you can then study what what happens to the group that experiences the change versus the group that doesn't or that experiences it differently. Um, and, you know, it often comes up in terms of, like, a, you could potentially have a policy intervention outside of sports. And, in fact, the desired effect of that policy intervention already happened naturally somewhere, so you can study what effect it had and whether it, 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 is, it is worth doing. It's worth mentioning that two things. One, no one is actually running a conscious experiment. That That's the point about the natural. So nobody is like putting people in in lab cages or something to, to experiment on them. The world is unfortunately experimenting on them. And also, we don't, we have no value judgment about this. We're not we're not happy that, that people are going through major turbulence and change and uncertainty in their lives. Uh, it, it's happening anyway, though, so why not learn from it is kind of the, the approach that people usually take to natural experiments. Yeah, that's a good point. And it also means that some things have natural experiments occur that you couldn't run a lab experiment so you know the, the sort of gold standard lab experiment is a is a blind randomized control trial where you want to study something so you take a bunch of people who signed up for your study and you adjust that thing for some of them and not for others and one thing that i've mentioned in countless of my tennis blog posts on tennis abstract is is this idea that 
we can't do these tests on tennis players or on sportsmen in general. I mean, there is a field of sports science, but it's pretty limited. So we, we can't say take 72 players who are going to play in the Australian Open and keep them from leaving their hotel room for two weeks. That would, nobody would ever sign up for that study. Um, it, it would be, I mean, it wouldn't be unethical, but it would be pretty weird. Uh, yet the pandemic can do that. So it, it, that's actually one of the best examples of a natural experiment stemming out of the pandemic is what's happening right now that a f I'm assuming a r fairly random group of, of people are able to practice less than another group of people. And they're all going to compete at the same event in a couple weeks. They all prepared in roughly the same way beforehand. It's just this one two week accidental intervention that's coming up so it'll be interesting to see how those players fare both in the warm-ups and in the Australian Open itself. Uh, but back to things that we can study. Carl, we've, we've had almost a year worth of sports trying to make do throughout the pandemic with limits on travel and social distance and, and all sorts of other things. Is there one particular particular area you think is most fruitful or most interesting in terms of the natural experiments we can run and, and learn something from the way that sports have had to change? I, I think there's a lot that you could do around fans and, and related, you know, home advantage. So, they're related because it's believed that much of home advantage comes from having fans supporting you and or your team. And it's also separate because there, there have just not been fans or way fewer fans than usual at a lot of events, um, which, which could have an effect even if they're, they're not a home crowd for anyone in particular, or if they're not a home crowd for you. So I think, um, What's also useful is that it's varied quite a bit, even within the same sport, either because the rules changed over time or because different people are organizing different events uh, or because of local rules from countries. So I, I think that that's been an area of study that's been interesting to people for a while. Like, what what is this effect of 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 fans in the stands for, for different acts and for the sport overall? And this has given us a good opportunity to the extent that we have the information we, we'd want about what the rules were for given events. Yeah, so we, talking about fans in the stands, as, as you've said, uh, people have studied this for a long time. We're interested in, in home court advantage and the fact that fans seem to influence that, presumably via affecting officials who have a more direct impact on, on what's going on on the court. And that launches us into a discussion of our very first major confounding variables. So I was very interested in, in an article that Ben Cohen and Joshua Robinson wrote in the Wall Street Journal several months ago that found that basketball three-point shooters and soccer penalty kickers were both way more accurate uh, once the, the sports restarted. And as far as I could tell, Cohen and Robinson were attributing that to the fact that fans weren't in the stadium. So there's, there's yes, less yelling, less distraction. Uh, thus, we can tentatively conclude fans make it harder to shoot three-pointers or fans make it harder to, to shoot accurate penalty kicks. Uh, but the big confounder is the pandemic itself, right? And everything, everything we might run a natural experiment on is a second or third order effect. Like the first order effect of the pandemic is 
there's a pandemic going on. The second order effect is we have to have fewer fans, we, we have to have people in quarantine, etc., 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 all the other things we're doing, and those are the things we often want to study. But the first order effect of the pandemic, keeping people from, from practicing, delaying the league starting, delaying social contact, all this stuff, um, that is a confounding factor, isn't it? I mean, just with the example of basketball and soccer, the things that Cohen and Robinson identified as players doing better um, when the leagues came back, those are the things that are easiest to practice on your own compared to other things in, in basketball or soccer or compared to hitting service returns or things like that in tennis. How much do you think that sort of confounds or, or uh, confuses our natural experiments when we have this giant confounding variable that we can never avoid doing this sort of pandemic natural experiment research. Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I wonder if you could mitigate that a little by just seeing if the effect wears off that maybe there's some decay in the benefit once you return to your usual practice and play regimen and you're not able to focus as much on that skill. But we don't really have prior knowledge about how long the benefits of, of potentially escalated practice on those skills might last. Um, you know, I think that the best bet would be for a sport that was mixing in some crowds with, with not crowds uh, early on. So you could, you could at least see the effect, um, see if the effect lasted there with crowds it was it was quite a broad effect i mean you mentioned three pointers and penalties and it was also free throws and basketball and and free kicks and in soccer so um i mean certainly those are all things that you could be practicing but uh, i thought that free kicks maybe were the most um the most interesting because corner threes are a very specific shot and uh, penalties and free throws are always taken from the from the same spot. But I mean, I guess you could say maybe goalies could have been practicing facing penalty kicks, but they need they need someone to to practice with to do that. Um, but free kicks come in in lots of different locations and against lots of different formations. So maybe there's something more meaningful about about that finding, although. There's kind of less data there too, and free kicks still rarely go in, so it's a pretty small effect. So, yeah, I, I, I agree that the pandemic itself is a confounder, and it's a confounder in the way you described in terms of how people are spending their time before the restart. It's a confounder in how people were spending their time after the restart and what was happening in their lives, and so it, it's going to be hard to subtract out entirely. Yeah, and you made a good suggestion in, in the beginning, beginning of your answer there that the way I framed the question is it's a confounder because we're trying to compare performance now to performance before the pandemic. And obviously the pandemic itself and other subsidiary effects of that are, are having some influence in, in the way people play when the leagues restart. But as you suggest, an ideal world it would be more like a laboratory intervention. And maybe we saw that a little bit in tennis because, for instance, the U.S. Open had no fans. I mean, there were a few people in the crowd, but there were no paying fans. The stadiums were basically empty. But then the French Open, just a few weeks later, 
it had some fans. The stadiums weren't full, but there were lots of fans there, uh, more at some matches than others, and that's that's a whole other potential variable, variable to consider. But it was closer to normal in the sense that you could have a heckler, you could have home fans cheering you on, you you at least have some kind of feedback in the way you're used to. So in an ideal world, you'd randomly take half the players on tour and send them to Flushing, half the players on tour and send them to Paris and run these two tournaments simultaneously. Of course, we didn't do that. We had them in chronological order. Um, so players were, had more practice by the time they got to the French Open. Um, they're on different surfaces, which is another confounding variable. There are always confounding variables with these things. But, but maybe by looking at leagues that restarted with different rules around the world, maybe some of the, the soccer leagues around Europe started with different fan rules, we can get a, get a better sense that way. And I, maybe that's the way to think about it, that yes, the pandemic will always be a confounder, but maybe there are ways to remove the pandemic as a confounding variable by looking at things that only happen post-pandemic. Like, for instance, the way that hard quarantine Australian Open players are going to play versus non-hard quarantine. They all faced the pandemic. They all had the same off-season. But they're facing a very different two weeks at the end of January than each other. And that's, that's more of a true natural experiment. So, okay, we've been talking mostly in generalities, although I've given a lot of examples in terms of tennis. Do you think that that tennis is better or or worse for identifying these kind of natural experiments compared to the other sports we've mentioned, like basketball and soccer? I think better in the sense that you can tease apart individual results and you have very different situations in different countries and tournaments. And some players also like making pretty big decisions, pretty different decisions and big decisions about when and how to, to rejoin the tour. So I think it, it's messy, but there's there's more opportunities to, to compare across different situations. And also, you know, the individual results, which you can compare, uh, including for certain specific stats that are pretty individual um you can you can compare to kind of before pandemic times for the same player so i I think there's there's more opportunities and like you said i mean we're doing this ahead of knowing the, the results for the australian open of maybe the most extreme example of this and not just the the inability to practice for for many players but the pure social isolation and what that does to them psychologically and um so i I think unfortunately for them and and maybe for us in terms of what it does to the tennis the 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 biggest opportunity to learn more about tennis and sports and and athletes is, is still to come so we started out by talking about home court and that's something you've done some work on uh in tennis, I remember you wrote something for, for five thirty-eight about how John Isner performed well at home, and I'm guessing you've done a few other things that I've forgotten about. Uh, as we we've said, that's something that that is a very natural thing to look at when sports are happening in bubbles, so they're not necessarily traveling, or when they are traveling and there is a home team, there isn't a home crowd. Uh, we also have this this weird factor where a lot of tournaments are happening at the same venue, so. So Alexander Zverev had a sort of home tournament or two home tournaments in in Cologne. Um, American tournaments had 
Cincinnati and New York, but they were both in New York, and then the same thing's happening in Australia with sort of this this mini temporary bubble. Uh, Beyond isolating for fans, no fans, or sort of half fans like Roland Garros, is is there more we can learn about home court from these kind of weird situations of, of mini bubbles and, and players moving around less. Yeah. It seems like you could try to tease out some of the effects, some of the facets of home court that might make a difference. I mean, the, it seems like the experience of players for sports that have used some kind of bubble, the experience is maybe more uniform than it was before. And some of that has to do with home court potentially and, and what advantage you might have being near home. And some of it some of it might also get at kind of the differences between players' resources, which is a really big factor in tennis and, and less so in some team sports. It's It's a factor right now for Australia, and that is another thing worth studying, that some of the best players in the world are having what seems like a much more comfortable experience, more conducive to preparing for the big event, and does that even widen their advantage over other players? But in other cases, where everyone's kind of bubbling together, what does it even mean? What does it matter where you are? I mean, you hear we did the last episode about Gordon Forbes and the, and the experience of traveling around the world and getting to experience different cities and, and the people in those cities and. I think for a lot of athletes now that that has been taken away. And so that would affect home court advantage and maybe would also affect their, their play in other ways, including potentially beneficial ones if it, if it helps them to focus more on the sport and on preparation. So, yeah, I was thinking along these lines the last couple of days as well that their players are used to moving around. And... As you say, it's not as big a deal in tennis. I mean, t- tennis is the court's always the same. The backdrop is usually similar, if not exactly the same. Compare that to a sport like baseball, where the backdrops are different, the f- the fences are fur- further or closer uh, to home plate, f- foul territory is different sizes, and so on. And, and players are are moving around twice a week. Um, tennis isn't quite like that, but there is some familiarity, and we now can look at situations where instead of relocating once a week, uh, the whole tour played a tournament at, at Flushing and then another tournament at Flushing. A tournament in Cologne, another tournament in Cologne. And now the same thing happening in Melbourne with tons of events happening simultaneously next week. What would you look at? I mean, are, are, do any stats come to mind or particular effects that you might hypothesize that we would see when players become more familiar with a a single venue instead of playing one or two matches and moving on immediately? Well, I guess in terms of visuals, potentially serving would be important. Um, I mean, I guess there's, there are conditions that you would get used to and maybe adjust better to longer matches although conditions can change so much at the same place or if you're playing at night and a lot of events were indoors last year uh, i guess indoor events have certain idiosyncratic lighting or height height of roof um i don't know uh 
Yeah, I mean, I think your point that that with baseball it's a bigger deal is is an important one. Um, yeah, I don't well, know what, thing, what comes to mind for you. One thing that comes to mind that it would be tricky to separate from momentum, but the idea that the players who did well in tournament A are also going to do well in tournament B. Like if I think I did something years ago looking at at how players performed in at the U.S. Open, depending on how they'd done in Cincinnati, or I did that for all slam warm-up, something like that. And I don't even remember how it how it turned out, but it's a natural question to ask. That is the momentum. Um, if a tournament like Cincinnati is going to use exactly the same surface, try to mimic the conditions of the U.S. Open, would we expect there to be more continuity in results? And you can't do anything more to predict continuity than have tournaments at the same exact venue on the exact same court. So I'm not sure whether the sample sizes are big enough to have something show up, but you might expect that a player who wins Cincinnati or scores a big upset in Cincinnati if Cincinnati's being held at, at Flushing Meadows, is going to do better uh, at the U.S. Open itself because their their results at the first event at that venue are telling you something about their suitability to the venue. I mean, what's really hard in tennis, as, as you point out, Carl, with so many conditions that can change, is figuring out exactly what they're suited to. I mean, is it the is it the court speed? Is it the humidity? Is it the fact that they like a restaurant down the street? I mean, that wouldn't be the case now since the restaurant's probably closed, but in, there could be a lot of different factors, but one, I mean, this is kind of the natural experiment aspect here. We don't have to know what those factors are. We don't need to find consecutive tournaments that both have an Applebee's in the neighborhood or both have 72% humidity. We know all that stuff is the same. So without trying to figure out what the important factors are, we could see whether players are performing the same way. But as I say, an obvious confounder is momentum, uh, at least... Most fans seem to think that a player who does well in week one will ride that high to week two. Uh, there could be sort of an anti-confounder of fatigue if someone does well in, in week one and we might expect them to be more tired coming back in week two. I don't know. It, 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 and this is where and I, I don't disagree with your point that tennis offers more opportunities for natural experiments in other sports. I think you make some good points there and it does. Um, on the other hand, it seems like tennis more than other sports, there's always a but. Maybe that's just my nature in, in studying this stuff, but there's always some confounder that's going to be really tough to control for. Yeah, and you know, I, th I think that the good news is that some of the factors you describe are going to be in place for consecutive events that are in different places. So momentum would be a factor and uh, fatigue as well. You know, I do wonder, let's say we did find that there was an effect, that, that there was an even bigger, let's say there is an advantage, um, or, or you, you are more likely to outperform in the second tournament if you just did well in, in, in the tournament just before it, and that that uh, outperformance is even bigger when they're at the exact same venue. I wonder if that also, that reflects that it's the same venue, or it also reflects taking away the uncertainty that would be injected by having to travel that you know we, we know we think we know maybe this is something we need to study more too but i think we think we know that the travel itself it can be so um can have such a big effect on performance and if if a player travels in a way that affects their sleep and their muscles and whatever then you know they can it can really hurt them and just taking out that variable might 
might sort of heighten that effect of having won the previous week or done well the previous week. Yeah, I mean, if we weren't in the post-pandemic environment, then even if you're in the same venue, you might have a different crowd or um, maybe by the second week you've become the darling of the home crowd and the, and the conditions are different. Whereas in the pandemic, that isn't really going to happen. I mean, I guess it could happen in in Australia with partial crowds there. Um, but in something like Cologne, which was basically empty, you, you wouldn't see that. So one thing that's fascinated me since the very beginning of the tennis restart is the notion of predictability. And I, I've done a few blog posts about that, including one this week, looking at whether tennis results are more, less, or equally predictable after the restart as they were before. And I think the conventional wisdom would be, I mean, I wish I'd done a Twitter poll on this to get some idea of what people are thinking about this, but I would have anticipated that match results would have been less predictable after the restart because uh, people are able to weather the pandemic differently. They have different resources. Uh, some some of the players might be recovering from the virus itself. I mean, so many issues are going to affect players coming back that while normally those same players are traveling on the same tour, facing most of the same conditions week to week, except for some of the, the perks that the top players get. And generally, I found that the tours were equally predictable. I mean, there were, there were some unexpected results in the first few women's events, but that was a small sample, and it's tough to know how much of it is just luck or maybe one player not being well prepared. But overall, when I looked at the five months or so of tennis since the restart, Men's tennis has been exactly as predictable as before. Women's tennis, it depends on how you look at it. It hasn't been considerably less predictable, maybe a little bit less predictable. Um, it's tough to tell because the structure of the tour has been different, which is a whole other issue. But you know, I'm curious, Carl, if you can go back to your mindset before you uh, carefully, assiduously read those pieces of mine. I mean, do you think that conventional wisdom, I mean, would you agree that conventional wisdom would have been that it would be less predictable. I mean, is it, and is there a reason why you can think that would turn out to be wrong? Yeah, I think the nature of cognitive biases is it's easier for me to now tell the stories of why it makes sense that results were predictable or about as predictable or more predictable than usual. But I, I do think the conventional wisdom and my uh, non-wisdom going in was that things would be less predictable because again of this idea that I was introducing before of just so many elements of uncertainty when you add in so much unknown I mean in a way like every week of the tennis season is a way for us to get more evidence about the current level of players and so we would have gone a really long time without getting new information about the current level of players I guess there were you know exhibitions here and there but not too many top players were were playing in them regularly and it's hard to know what to make of them anyway. And then there's also all the uncertainty of everything else about the pandemic, about how it would have changed their practice routines and maybe their motivation and their uh, their other um, distractions, whether they, they went up or down. So given that it's hard to know how all that would have affected different players and how it would be unlikely for for all of it to be correlated perfectly with their existing levels, it just seemed likely that what we thought was the the sort of hierarchy among players would be would have much more uncertainty than usual so it'd be harder to make 
accurate predictions. Then again, you know, a theme on this show, I think, has always been that the the best players are the best at adapting and, and staying at the top and also have the most resources to help them do it. And um, that it, it wouldn't be surprising that this is, especially with, with months to, to, to adjust and, and adapt, that, that this would be yet another obstacle that they would be better at adapting to. Uh, I think there's also some issues around like the the tournament field and tournament strength and whether uh, the best you know that there are there are more matches that are easier to predict based on the mix of players who are coming back at the first events. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think um, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of sort of confirmation of, of, of what we've seen in a lot of other contexts around what makes the best players best and, and stay the best. So going, going wide again, uh, I, I think, I think you're right that uh, yes, the top tennis players all face different sorts of challenges, but yeah, they're used to having to practice in a variety of, uh, of, of contexts with different challenges and so on. So in, they mostly figured it out. I mean, and whatever upsets there were, maybe they kind of canceled themselves out in terms of the sort of analysis I'm doing. But going going to a wider view again, I don't know of anybody that's done work on this same issue about results being different than expected after the pandemic. I mean, that, that's mostly my feeling. I haven't really looked for them. I don't know if the, the work is out there. But what we're saying about tennis, about the top performers figuring out how to stay there their top performance because they adapt well they've continued to adapt well do you think that applies to other sports or are maybe there are there sports where we'd expect to see a greater post-pandemic effect because players couldn't practice or had other limitations on them um before the leagues were able to restart well i mean the effect of of not being able to practice as a team uh, w- with other people seems like it could be bigger for team sports that it's it's more essential i mean for tennis it's obviously helpful to play against another pro but you could find someone to hit against or a machine and you could still work on serving and 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 a lot of the other elements of the game um more easily i think there's also maybe just a difference in in sort of technically what you would find with tennis and other sports around this question of the direct effect of the pandemic. So if a tennis player tests positive, they're not playing once it's known they test positive. So there are no results. Um, but it, so it, it, th- that match wouldn't be unpredictable. It just wouldn't happen. But if a team seems very strong and then there are a cluster of cases and cases would cluster with teams in a way that doesn't make as much doesn't have an analogy in individual sports um the you know that team could be weaker than it looked like just the the week before because it doesn't have all of its players or there's a delay in its games and it has to make up a bunch of games and um in 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 any scenario that it would introduce some something that would look like unpredictability when maybe it's that we haven't sort of updated the team's trend as fast so um, I could I could see the, both of those making a difference. Yeah, that does make sense. It's certainly harder to practice playing basketball as a team in a pandemic as it is to, to practice serving or maybe even practicing returning if you have one other person in your bubble. You can you might have to play a lot of practices and practice matches with the same player, like the 
quarantining players in Australia do right now, but at least you can you can play something fairly realistic. Whereas people in other sports like soccer and basketball uh, were unable to do that at least for some time, so they were limited to, to certain types of skills like the the sort of like free kicks or three pointers that we were talking about before, where we did see an improvement. So one. This is sort of a niche issue to, issue to tennis, but it's one that we've talked about a lot before, one that I've written quite a bit about, and that's the pace of play. And uh, again, I wish I had done sort of some more straw polling before it happened, but a fair number of changes all happened at the same time going into the Cincinnati-New York bubble last fall, where there weren't going to be any fans, and for the most part... The, the matches were played with Hawkeye Live, so no lines people and no challenges. I mean, I, I say for the most part because the, the show courts, or maybe it was just Ash, it, in, during the U.S. Open, they used lines people. But for the most part, there were no lines people. And players had to get their own towels, which you'd think slows things down compared to when ball kids are running around with towels. And, and I found that, before I tell you the finding, why I wish I'd done the straw polling is... I'm not sure what to expect from that trade-off. I mean, having to players having to fetch their own towels, towels would slow things down, but having no fans would speed things up. Um, having no Hawkeye would speed things up because you're not waiting for for challenges. Um, so what's the uh, what's the net effect? Well, it turns out, at least in Cincinnati last year, the net effect was play slowed down a lot. It went from about 41 seconds per point, including the time of play itself. Um, and down to 44 seconds per point, which was which is a major difference. When I've looked at this before, I found meaningful differences of just a second or two between tournaments. But this was this was a three second gain per point. It really slowed down to the point where I think we can be pretty confident this is a real effect. This isn't just luck from this combination of towel fetching, no fans, and so on. Um, I mean. It, it, this, this seems like a, one of our clearer findings about tennis, that if you change these parameters, then you get this result. I mean, ultimately, we're doing all, all this to learn something about the sport. I mean, knowing what we now think we know about play slowing down in these circumstances, I mean, do we learn something useful about tennis? Does it tell us something about how tournaments should be organized or which of these rules we should keep going forward when we have more flexibility about lines people and towel kids and all that stuff? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think a question for for this natural experiment subject generally and for, um, for, for this question in particular is that um, we don't we can't just assume that everything else will return to what it was before. So it's not clear like how these findings would carry over um, that the, basically the after times may not be the same as the before times. It, it does seem, and that could be because of deliberate changes to, to rules and, and to, to sort of the choreography of, of events and staffing, but, but also it could just be because player behavior changes in some, in some fixed way. But, you know, I think the finding is, is really indicative of, of what, um, of how the rules are, were enforced before, how the rules were enforced during, and also 
wh- how players use time between points and and what what drives them to do it and how it it seems like maybe it turns out that fan noise isn't one of the driving factors that it that it feels that way for the extreme cases but it has more to do with player pacing and routine and maybe you know sort of mindfulness techniques and planning for the next point and whatever else players are doing and that that doesn't change much um you could say it's still a confounder because there are so many weird things they were dealing with that could be affecting how they were using that time but uh in general it 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 seems like a, a really useful finding we wouldn't have had about what what's behind the the lengthy time between points and the slow pace of play I have to throw this in there. Uh, I, I I recently got match video from, I think it was the 1977 Australian Open final, the year there were two Australian Opens. And the one major, the Vitas Gerolitis one, was at the second Australian Open that year against John Lloyd, who's probably better known as the ex-husband of Chris Everett. And I'd never watched John Lloyd play before. He's not a particularly important player in the grand scheme of tennis history. But he had tucked his towel into his shorts. So it was just sitting there to be used at all times. So if you want to speed up play, just look to the wisdom of Australian tennis semi-great John Everett, or John John Lloyd, rather. Uh, he would have hated that. Um, and if you want to speed up play, then you have that solution. I don't think that many players actually want to speed up play, which is which is part of the problem. It seems like there's a, an apparel opportunity there. Maybe since no one's taken it, it's not a good idea but somehow that you could attach a towel or towel like fabric to to tennis clothes so you're not just having to tuck it in i i would wear it well i i came up with a great name for it i, I when i first became a big fan of of sam groth when he had his his brief bright run on tour uh he he was a, a he's a big user of the uh, Australian slang mate. He says he says thanks mate to the towel kids all the time. He says sorry mate every time he misses a uh, misses a toss. Lots of mates. So if he's saying thanks mate to the towel kids, I think I think the the towel attached to the tennis shorts should be the towel mate. It's perfect. So it seems like we're moving in that direction in general. The tennis is slowing down. That the John Lloyd solution will will not exactly catch on. So some final thoughts for this episode. Carl, I, I've mentioned two or three times now of straw polling. I wish I'd done beforehand to get a sense of conventional wisdom. So let's try to do that a little bit. Everyone's focused on Australia right now. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 27th. In four days, there will be tennis happening in Melbourne, including a tournament starting a couple days later, for, at least for women who were in hard quarantine. Uh, which unfortunately denies us part of a, a natural experiment we would have liked to have had. But at these warm-up tournaments, and then at the Australian Open itself, what do you expect to see as the difference in performance between the players who were forced into two weeks of hard quarantine versus the players who were able to practice in that time the way they expected to? I think I don't know how to quantify it, but I think it will be real but modest. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean, I guess if a player had a 50% chance of winning a match purely based on past results, then maybe it's more like 40, 42. Uh, I, I just... 
think they're going to be really resourceful about using that time. They're going to be really eager to get out and play and very motivated. Um, I think in the in the warm up tournament, they'll be especially enthusiastic about getting matches even more than the other players. I think everyone will be. Uh, and that there will be just enough time by the Australian Open for them to be almost caught up. So you, you mentioned earlier one way we could look at some of these questions is by looking at the decay, that, that maybe there would be a strong effect the first week back and then it would fade away as things return to something closer to normalcy, at least in terms of the normalcy of how much players are able to practice and get match play. I mean, you, you mentioned that the players in hard quarantine will be really excited to come back, maybe more so than the other players, but do you expect to see a stronger effect? I think I think the men are mixed in. I'm not totally clear on this, but I think... I think that hard quarantined men will be competing against regular quarantined men. So we'll have this natural experiment for the men in the warm-up events, um, even if we don't for the women. So would you expect a stronger hard quarantine effect that first week back than at the Australian Open itself a week later? Yes. Um, I, I do. I think we'll also see... I mean, this is, if we're talking about a sort of yes-no result, then what I'm about to say is inevitable. But I think in some sort of like real terms of of performance, maybe taking into account margin, we're going to see a lot of variation that some of the hard quarantine players will show very little effect and some will show a lot and maybe retire from their first match or withdraw from the tournament. That um, the effect this has on them, either because of how they spent their time or their condition entering or just luck uh, will be will have a pretty wide range like the the range of outcomes will be bigger than the than the average effect and you mentioned some of these players might retire do you think that there will be more retirements or withdrawals than usual at the warm-up tournament or at the australian open itself yeah i mean i i I forget what the current rule is you can probably refresh my memory but there will be some motivation to at least try to play, even if you feel like that this has taken a real toll on you or you're facing injury risk. Um, so I think there will be more of those. And then the players who who do play and make it through the second round might look a lot like the players who were not in hard quarantine, just by maybe mostly by selection effect. Yeah, and that's an interesting issue too, is, is yeah, there is this selection effect that's baked into the very structure of tennis tournaments that the players in the second round have won a match. I mean, I guess there's some buys at some other events, but for the most part, if if there are players who are very very negatively affected by whatever change we're looking at, whether it's hard quarantine or, or just something else in the pandemic, if we're looking at results back in the U.S. Open in August last year, um, those players are mostly gone by the end of the first round. And when I did my first studies of this back in August, I tried to, to isolate that a little bit by looking both at the results as a whole and also looking just at first round results. But of course, when you do that, you throw away half of your data. <laughs> and especially at the tournaments I was looking at, the first round results are are tough to study because they have qualifiers, they have wild cards, they have players you don't know as much about. So even if you weren't doing a natural experiment, you'd expect your predictions to be less confident at that stage. And then once you add in all this additional uncertainty, then it's tough to separate the different types of uncertainty. The uncertainty because we just don't know the players that well, and the uncertainty because we don't know what's happened to those players or what's what's changed in their circumstances. So it, it is a tricky thing, but I think that's a valid point to keep in mind that 
whoever it is we're seeing by late in the first week of the Australian Open, yeah, maybe they were hard quarantined, maybe they weren't, maybe they had the cushy treatment of the stars in Adelaide, maybe they didn't, but whatever they faced, they did, they're doing okay. I mean, they, they adapted, uh, they're thriving, and the effects of this pre-tournament stuff fade away pretty fast. So, What's your general- prediction, Jeff? Well, I... Uh, I think there will be effect. I think it will be a lot smaller than to, to let's quantify yours as a 50% chance of winning, turning to a 40% chance of winning. Um, I, I, I would have said half that or less. Um, I, I think it will be, I think it will be an effect. It'll be tiny and there will probably be a few more retirements. What I wrote to, to one friend recently is that because of this, these major newsworthy events that, the global press is all breathlessly covering as every bit of news seeps out of quarantine. There will be some upsets. We'll pretend like they're because of quarantine and they're mostly not going to be because there are always updates, upsets. There will be some retirements. We'll pretend like they're all because of quarantine, but mm, there's always a few retirements and maybe we'll get a couple more than usual. Maybe we can, we can at least anecdotally tie them to the quarantine. But I mean, in general, I mean, and I feel like a broken record here, but I'm always going to predict that things aren't going to change that much. And I, I like the way that you put it earlier, Carl, that these players are great in part because they adapt well to every sort of challenge or else they wouldn't be here in the first place. They haven't faced pandemics before. They haven't faced hard quarantine before, but they have faced all sorts of challenges to get where they are now. And they'll mostly get through this okay. So it'll give us a lot to talk about. It'll give us a lot to speculate about when we do get those up- upsets and retirements. But in terms of a big effect, it's it's not going to happen. It, it's it, Maybe we'll get something that's statistically detectable, but not much more than that. Uh, but maybe we should throw that on Twitter and see what people think as well. If we can figure out a, uh, a straightforward way of, of quantifying it that we can then test after the first round or after the warm-up tournaments. So let's see. Carl, before we wrap this one up, um, there are a few, a few topics on our list that we didn't really touch on, but I think we've, we've run the gamut of some natural experiments and their limitations and tennis versus other sports and all sorts of stuff. Any final thoughts you have before we wrap this one up? Well, I think it's it's such a rich field of study. There's going to be more opportunities, and I'm I'm really interested in what people find, and and I, I think people are 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 going to be looking into this for a long time. What, what what's happened? I mean, just think of all the Olympic sports and the upheaval of having the Olympics delayed a year or maybe canceled entirely. Uh, college football and like different rules in different places for for fans and. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a time of, of so much more change than usual for, for athletes. And, and that's not even to mention the, the horrific, um, scenario of, of athletes who get COVID and, and have complications and, and what that ends up doing, uh, to them. So I, I, uh, it's it's not it's not a happy story as it as it hasn't been for for anyone but th- there is a lot to learn at least and maybe maybe 
that will help people in, in future scenarios. You know, one thing I, I, the last thing that, that has been on my mind with this almost since the beginning is like seeing a really good study about the effect of wearing a mask on, on performance. Of course, it's something no one would ever do if they had, if they could choose not to do it. So someone would have to be willing to try it. But, you know, we know that runners are among the least likely to be wearing masks outside in places where case counts are high enough that masks outside are a good idea. And from the runner's point of view, it makes good sense. Um, but do we know like what the actual effect is? Because some runners are wearing masks, so they are kind of recreational runners already trying this out. And I, I'm, I'm curious what effect this has on elite athletes too, to, to try to practice or train with a mask on. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I, I wonder if there will be natural experiments there because for the most part, the major urban races have been canceled or changed beyond recognition. So you don't have, you know, 10,000 runners out doing a half marathon next to each other. But I mean, maybe somewhere someone's trying to run a 500 person 10K, but with masks. And we could look at year to year times or, or aggregate um, 10K times for those runners versus similarly timed races uh, with people who didn't wear masks. I mean, the, the, the natural experiments are... Are legion. I mean, and, and it's worth saying that, you know, natural experiments are hardly limited to times of pandemic. Most sports analytics are based on natural experiments of some kind or other. Maybe most is strong, but a lot of them are. A lot of our findings on things like home court have been have been based on that. So we just have a lot more of them than we normally do in any given year of time. So um, I want to finish with one plea. I, I started a project back in August or September where I, I was going to gather research on topics like this from across the sporting world on my blog. I, I gathered a few things from soccer and basketball. I think there was one thing regarding hockey as well. And I was hoping people would pitch in a little bit more and, and show me the things they found because I can't keep up with all the research in, in every sport, even though I, I try with a few. Um, if you do find interesting studies about pandemic effects or the second or third order effects of things related to the pandemic in any sport, no matter how small, even if it's badminton, um, I, I would be interested to hear about it and I'll, I'll try to revive that post and, and centralize those things in one place because I do think that a, a lot of these questions are so complicated. There's so many confounding variables that if we can get different approaches to the same sort of question from two or three different sports or even more, then we can learn a lot more than just trying to extract every last drop of data from tennis or from basketball. Um, this is a, a great time for, let's call it interdisciplinary sports analytics. So on that note, please send those to me uh, at Tennis Abstract, whatever you find would be would be most appreciated. Tennis Abstract on Twitter. Um, let's wrap it up here. Carl, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Everyone, thanks for listening. You can find our previous episodes at podcast.tennisabstract.com. Follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Bialik, and maybe someday he will start tweeting again. You can find me at Tennis Abstract. And um, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.